Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of the scripture to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And on the heels of the two scripture readings we've already heard, one from Matthew and one from 1 Corinthians, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 18 this morning. It only recently occurred to me that the title of the sermon was going to cause so much excitement or angst, I guess, depending on... So. Everyone, uh, stay locked in, as it were, for, for this particular text. But we do not want you to be uninformed, Paul writes, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The main point of this text, if you don't like the main point, if that causes your eyes to roll uh, when I give an explicit main point, I will pardon that transgression, but not today. Because you have to get the main point of this passage clear. And that is that Christians should be encouraged by knowing that those who have died in Christ share the same hope as those living in Christ. Christians should be encouraged by knowing that those who have died in Christ share the same hope as those living in Christ. And so from verse 1, we do not want you to be uninformed, to verse 18, encourage one another with these words. Everything in between is in the service of achieving this goal right here, this purpose. And you have to keep that in perspective. This is not a high-definition blueprint for the end of time. This is a pastoral word that certainly addresses some of those elements for a church who is concerned about something very, very specific. And Paul is seeking to bring comfort and encouragement. By the way Paul starts, he does indicate that he is giving them new information. But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Uh, Certainly already in the letter, he's appealed to what he taught them while he was there. And apparently, uh, at least with the level of precision with which he's going to proceed, he he hasn't talked about this yet. He hasn't talked about this particular thing. This is a new bit of teaching, at least with regards to how specific It is, and it is knowledge for the sake of hopeful grief. He wants them to know something, and he wants them to know something about those who have fallen asleep. Now, this phrase is a euphemism for death. It's a nicer way to say death. Uh, It's just like we might say someone passed away instead of someone died. And it it certainly does not refer, despite the Seventh-day Adventist and Jehovah's Witness uh, friends, Uh, despite their contention that this refers to this kind of soul sleep, which would be this unconscious period between death and resurrection, uh, it simply refers to death. 
And it is so well documented and it is so well attested in the ancient literature that I'm not going to spend a bunch of time uh, arguing for the, the idea that those who have fallen asleep are simply those who have died. To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ, not to be unconscious. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, one is in anguish, one is in Abraham's bosom. Uh, even Jesus himself in John's gospel, when they are going to visit Lazarus, remember what he says. Um, he says, we have our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. We go to wake him. Then John clarifies that he meant he was dead. Okay, so this is a, this is a euphemism for being dead. And so Paul is wanting them to know something about those who have died. And the larger context very clearly confirms those who have died in Christ. Those who have died in Christ, so that as they grieve the loss of these brothers and sisters, they aren't doing so without hope. And there are so many examples, and you can only put so much into a sermon. There are so many examples of hopeless grief in the ancient world that I was able to look at in preparing this sermon uh, 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 on on, um, eulogies and things that have been inscribed on tombstones to letters that have been found written to people uh, who have had a spouse or a child die. There was just so little hope. What do you, you didn't have much to tell that parent or that spouse or that whatever. It was, you can't do anything about it. Death snatches everyone. It's unavoidable. You just got to kind of move on. There was, there's no hope. There is no hope at all, by and large. And we're going to see that, that Paul does not want the Thessalonians to grieve like that. He wants them to grieve, but grieve with hope. And it seems that he has something more in mind than even general bereavement. Something, something more, in my, uh, more specific in mind. Listen to what he says. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul makes a, a statement here. That, that many commentators believe is just actually reciting an ancient creed that had been well that had been kind of memorized and passed down. It was well known. It doesn't even sound, by the way, particularly Pauline. You have the since we believe that intro uh, makes it sound like something that was kind of universally confessed. He uses Jesus instead of Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, or the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul always says. It's just Jesus by himself, not particularly Pauline. Um, and then Paul is all, almost always talking about God raising Jesus from the dead. And here it doesn't, that's not how it's phrased. doesn't seem particularly Pauline at all. Uh, so, but whether or not he's citing a creed, he's citing something that is certainly true. And what he's saying is this, just as Christ died and just as Christ rose again, so those who have fallen asleep died. When God returns, he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, and they will be resurrected. That's what we're going to see in the passage. That's what he says. That when, when, when at the return of Christ, that those who have fallen asleep in Christ are going to receive resurrection bodies. And the concern, therefore, seems to be in Thessalonica that those who have died in Christ will miss out on something. That they will miss out on something important and exciting and only get to see it kind of in a secondhand way, and they will be somehow disadvantaged at the return of Christ. And this is a big deal, and when we get into the passage a little bit deeper, you're going to see this, but seeing, being, getting kind of the second effort, the second experience of something is never the same. In fact, regrettably, 
very regrettably, someone decided it'd be a good idea to show the finals of the World Cup this morning at 9 a.m. So what am I going to get to watch? The secondhand replay version. Not nearly as exciting uh, because other people will have already experienced it. Okay, and hopefully no one tells me anything. And if you're that person who comes up to me and you did a Google search and you tell me what happened, you're done. Okay, all right, I do not want to hear from you. But the idea is, but that's the idea. Uh, Paul is saying the people who have died in Christ are not going to miss out on something special that's going to happen when Christ returns. They're not going to be uh, disadvantaged. They're not going to be disadvantaged. He continues on. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. There is some discussion about what exactly it means, this word from the Lord. But I'm going to shortcut that and say when the dust of the discussion settles, what it means is either he is giving a well-known saying of Jesus that is not recorded in Scripture, which would be an agrapha, that's what that's called, uh, a saying of Jesus not recorded in the Gospels, or he is paraphrasing, summarizing teaching that does happen to be in the Gospels and putting some of those things uh, together. Uh, he does something... Similar, by the way, in Acts chapter 20 with a farewell to the Ephesian elders. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, remember his parting lines are, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Well, if you go look for it is more blessed to give than to receive in the Bible, you won't find it. Not there. But it was the word of the Lord Jesus that was well known and that Paul certainly knew. It's likely that that's what he is uh, that, that's what he is quoting right here or paraphrasing. That's what he's quoting or paraphrasing. Now, unfortunately, the ESV takes out this strong negation here. It says, uh, those who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede. In the, in the Greek, it's a more emphatic. It's something like, they will certainly not precede. Okay. They certainly will not precede those who have fallen asleep in Christ, as if that's what the Thessalonians were suggesting, that, that those who were alive when Jesus returned, they were going to have some kind of advantage. They were going to have some kind of leg up. And the idea is, that's not the case. They are not going, if you are alive at the return of Christ, you don't experience something redemptively significant and exciting um, ahead of time, and, and all the dead people, so to speak, get to catch up later. That's not it. That's not it. That's what he's saying. That's not how it works. So how does it work then? If that's not how it works, how does it work? Well, Paul gives four distinct elements, four distinct elements that characterize the hope of both the living and the dead. The first one is return. The first one is return. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. First part, the return. So, so taking our spatial references very loosely here, given the kind of apocalyptic language we're hearing, the idea is that Jesus will come down, okay? he will descend from heaven, and we get a threefold description of that descent, that return. A cry... A voice, a trumpet sound, that cry of command there. It's the only time this word's used in the New Testament. It's, it, would, it's refer, it refers to kind of how a commander would address subordinates. It communicates that something authoritative is happening. Some of your translations say a loud command, something like that. 
but, but the, the Greek communicates something authoritative, like a commander uh, would say to his subordinates. The voice of an archangel. Now, this is particularly compelling because while intertestamental Judaism loved ranking, had this developed and super rich angelology with ranks and all the rest of it, the New Testament says almost nothing about the ranks of angels. In fact, the archangel Michael is the only angel so named in the New Testament, explicitly in Jude 9. He shows back up in Revelation chapter 12, but he's not called an archangel there. He's just called Michael. This is presumably the same angel Michael who shows up in Daniel chapter 10, and who is called one of the chief rulers or one of the princes. Is this a reference to the archangel Michael? Very possible, but, the, but the, we just have no way of knowing. Very possible, but we just have simply no way of knowing. The third thing is the sound of a trumpet. Now, in Judaism, the trumpet did not function primarily as a musical instrument. It did function as that. But if you go back and read the Old Testament, it primarily functioned as some kind of announcement, a signal, particularly a signal marking the visible appearance of the Lord. And this is continued, particularly in the prophets, that a trumpet would announce the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Many, many references could be given. It talks about the trumpet sound in conjunction with the day of the Lord, and the trumpet being associated with the end time uh, even gains greater steam in the intertestamental period. So, here's the thing. It, it, it's likely that we aren't supposed to understand these three, we aren't supposed to be listening for these you know, three distinct Sounds, but th this is this is a kind of a threefold emphatic description of one unmistakably and, and extremely public, climactic, authoritative event. These pushing these three things together like this. This is an extremely public, key public, visible, unmistakable, climactic, authoritative event. That is happening. And Paul's purpose is to say, when the Lord returns, what is happening will be clear. Who is returning will be very clear. It will be very obvious. It will be extremely public. No one will think the neighbor is having band practice. This is going to be a big deal. It will be very clear, and this will be authoritative. That's the first element, okay? Return. Return. Second element, resurrection. And the dead in Christ, that is to say those who are asleep, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is the exact group that they're concerned about. Those who have died, who are in Christ. And he says, those folks will rise first. That's exactly what John says in chapter 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming where all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so what this, of course, implies is that those who are alive at Christ's return will be transformed. That's why we read 1 Corinthians 15. The dead in Christ will rise. Uh, everyone who is living will be transformed. So everyone will have resurrection bodies there. Uh, but he does make it explicit. There, there's nothing here that makes us think there's some large time gap between the two. Uh, as though, but there's no, but it's not all in one split second time simultaneous either. It seems to kind of happen in the same time ish. But the dead in Christ rise first. Then there's a transformation. That seems to be how he lays it out. 
toward the end of saying, listen, they're not going to miss out on anything. Now, why, why the big deal? What would they possibly be missing out on? Well, we haven't got to that yet. Like, why is it such a big deal that the dead in Christ just don't, you know, get resurrected later or something like that? Because of what's, because they don't want to miss out on the rapture. The rapture. Verse 17, the first part. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. That is to say, those who have died in Christ and resurrected, those who are transformed. We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. What does that mean? What on earth does that mean? And while I am not opposed to changing my theology in midair, I will tell you that that is not some of the typical understanding of what this refers to, I don't think can be found anywhere in this text. What does it refer to? The Greek word harpazo refers to being, is a word that means to be snatched or to be seized. The word was Latinized in early Latin translations of the Bible as rapio, and that is where we get our word rapture. That's where we get our word rapture. Harpazo to rapio to rapture into the English language. Let me just point out a few things here about the getting caught up. In light of the context, it is a very public very clear, very visible return of Christ. It is not a secret return, contrary to what some of you may have been taught. Second, Paul has already used the technical term parousia. That's the idea of coming. Those we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord. That's a word that refers to a royal visit, but in Paul it's a technical term. It's a technical term for the return of Christ. It's a technical term for the return of Christ. But he uses another term here that in the English you would just read over, but in the Greek is unmistakable for meeting. For meeting. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That word is apontesin. Apontesin in the Greek. And it refers to something very specific and very well known in the Hellenistic culture. Listen to this one very detailed description of an apontessin, because this changes how you're going to understand what happens here. Once civic leaders became aware that a king or important official was coming to their city of Parousia, which is what that would have been called, they would adopt a formal resolution to pay tribute to that person by hosting a formal reception in his honor. Prominent citizens, and often including priests and priestesses, officers, officers, soldiers, leading teachers and their students, and victorious athletes, were then chosen to be a part of the delegation that would meet the visiting dignitary outside the city walls, sometimes a great distance away. Those in the official reception party dressed in their finest clothes and wore laurel wreaths on their heads. Those who remained behind also often wore special clothes and garlands and decorated the city in festive colors. The delegation would greet the coming dignitary with shouts of praise and song and then escort him the rest of the way into their city where the citizens would similarly welcome him with the incessant shouts 
of praise. And once inside the city walls, the dignitary would offer sacrifices on the local altars and perhaps pronounce judgment on select prisoners, liberating some, but sentencing others to execution. That is an apontessive. They go out, they meet the king who is coming, and they come back with them to where he was headed. In fact, in Acts chapter 28, Paul receives his own apontesis. In Acts 28, listen to what it says. Uh, Luke writes, And the brothers there, when they heard about us, that's Luke and Paul, when they heard about us, they came as far as the forum of Appius in the three taverns to meet us, apontesin. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself. The idea is there's a coming, there is a going out to, and then there is a coming back with. Similarly, in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the the virgins that we read is the first scripture reading. The word there for there's a cry at midnight, here is the bridegroom, come out and meet him, is apontesin. The idea is that the, the, the foolish virgins didn't have enough oil. The wise virgins did. They went out to meet the bridegroom, and they didn't sit there and play dominoes in the field or sit there on the road. They, uh, they, he conti- they continued back with him to wherever the house was that they were having the marriage feast and where the door got shut. Okay, Bridegroom's coming. They go out to meet him and come back. So this idea uh, th- that was very well known even led someone like John Chrysostom in the early 4th century, uh, in, as early as the 4th century, to conclude this about this passage. He says, For as when a king ceremoniously entered a city, certain dignitaries and city rulers and many others who were confident toward the sovereign, that means the person coming, they would go out the city to meet him. But the guilty and the condemned criminals would be guarded within, awaiting the sentence which, which the king would deliver. In the same way, when the Lord comes... Those who are confident toward him will meet him in the midst of the air. But the condemned who are conscious of having committed sins, have committed many sins, excuse me, will wait below for their judge. So the picture that emerges is not a people disappearing and going to heaven. That is not the picture that emerges here. The picture is that at the return of Christ, that believers that the dead in Christ will rise, believers will be transformed, and as the Lord is coming, we will be caught up to Him to bring our King down. And it will be the ultimate how about now scoffers moment when we escort our King back down to earth where we will spend eternity, He will judge and renew, renew the earth. We have a physical, corporeal, renewed earth existence, not somewhere up in heaven. Understood as kind of the intermediate state. And then fourth, the fourth element here is, and so we will always be with the Lord. The bridegroom will come, and then he will never go away again. That's the promise. We will never be separated from him. Those who have died in Christ, those who are alive in Christ, will spend uninterrupted fellowship with Christ and one another forever. That's the hope. And with that hope, and in that hope, Paul concludes, remember the main point here, verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words so you do not grieve as those who have no hope. Christians should be encouraged, the main point, 
by knowing that those who have died in Christ share the same hope of those who are living in Christ. Certainly many things not answered in this particular text, but recall Paul has a very specific purpose in writing it, to comfort and encourage the Thessalonian Christians who are wondering what happens to those who are who die in Christ. They have the promises, but their, their cold corpse is in the ground. How do they fit into the story? And Paul says, here's how you grieve with hope. Here's how you grieve with hope. They are not going to miss out on what's coming. No, 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 no. They will be able to participate. The hope is there. They will escort the king down to earth. And they will do so in a resurrected body. How do we apply something like this? How do we grieve with hope? I want to lay out a paradigm and application here that is hopefully helpful for coming alongside others in such grief and perhaps processing it yourself and this is, seems particularly appropriate here in the holiday season. This is a tough time. You, we've got people in this room celebrating uh, Christmas for the first time without a loved one. Sometimes the, 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 the scream of the empty chair is the loudest thing in the room. How do we grieve well and, more, and how do we come alongside grieving people well to encourage them? So let me just lay out this paradigm for you here that's been very helpful for me. And that is, I think I hit the wrong button, I'm sorry. Our losses are real and the promises of God are true. Our losses are real. Promises of God are true. If we downplay the first one, we will undercut the per- significance of a person's life and God's grace displayed within it. Oh, come on now, we're moving on. It's just a celebration. Let's move forward here to the promises of God. Downplay one, overplay the other. If we downplay the second, then we, if we downplay the second one and we live in that first one, we'll tend to, tend to end up in identity-shaping grief and despair. We'll grieve as those who don't have any hope or those whose identity has been transformed by loss instead of that being part of a story. So let's start with the first here. Our losses are real. Why is that? Our losses are real because in death, no matter what one can say about being present with Christ, they are nevertheless absent from us. It is truly the case that we won't have another conversation this side of heaven. That's truly the case. And by the way, that is fundamentally, it seems to me, what makes death so tragic. This occurred to me as I was reading through Acts chapter 20 when Paul says goodbye to the Ephesian elders. After he's done instructing them, they get on the ground, they pray together. He says there was much weeping because they knew they'd never see him again. Well, isn't that what is so, isn't that in many cases what is so devastating about death? I mean, imagine if someone died and they got resurrected the next day, just walking around again probably wouldn't be a ton to grieve over. You know, it'd be a bummer, but hey, we'll see him tomorrow. The challenging thing about death is that there is a real separation of relationship and kind of an engaging relationship. There is truly a last conversation this side of heaven. The consequences of death, relational separation, 
That's what makes it hard. And that's real. Nothing about the promises of God makes that not real. Our losses are real because, number two, death is an enemy. Death is an enemy. Paul says that the last enemy to be defeated is what? Death. And every time with each death, the enemy wins a battle because of the consequences of the fall. Even if we know it will lose the war. Because death is an enemy. To be defeated, but not yet. But because of that, our losses are, are real. And our losses are real because we lose people who genuinely contribute to our life. They are not auxiliary performers. They, in many cases, have contributed to who we are. Some people could say, I can imagine who I would be without this, that, or the other person. And our tears, of, our tears in death are, are tokens of love for those who had a genuine impact on us. And sometimes that impact, honestly, isn't even realized until they're gone. Our losses are real. Our losses are real. And the promises of God are true. The promises of God are true. To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ himself. No more pain. No more suffering. No more strife. And perhaps importantly, no more sin. To use Paul's language, who will deliver me from this body of death? Ironically, the answer is, in the course of redemption, it is death first, and then resurrection. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Death will. And then resurrection. And there is the same hope for those who are dead in Christ as those who are alive in Christ. Let me tell you a story here from a seminary professor of mine. And, and he, he had a beautiful, beautiful little girl. I think she's about eight years old. Missionary in Malaysia. Rode her bike off a cliff and died. They found her dead. And I remember him saying, you know, that first day, first day or two, they were just kind of trying to say anything to make each other feel a little bit better. And someone uh, said something about some scar or birthmark that she, when it was, it was a scar, I believe, that she had on her body and said, well, you know, you know, now she has a body without a scar. And so, you know, at first he's like, yeah, yeah, of course. He just said we were all just saying yes to one another. But then he remembered something. He remembered, no, no, the, the resurrection, her glorified resurrection, that's not yet. He said it brought him great hope and comfort to know they were both waiting for the same thing still because they shared the same hope. Because the hope for those who had died in Christ is the same as those who are alive in Christ. They were both waiting for that royal visit, arm in arm, 
Neither one was going to have an advantage on the other. They, were st they still had an eager expectation of what was to come, and that gave him great, great comfort. Glory awaits. The promises of God are true. Anyone who's died in Christ, frankly, would not want to come back and hang out with us. And that's because God is glorious and because the promises of God are true. So practically then, how can you wield this paradigm? Let me just say a couple things as we close, particularly in light of the holiday season here. First is don't make the mistake coming alongside someone of rushing past loss because you can't sit in awkwardness and discomfort with somebody. Um, this is really just a celebration. Why is everyone crying? Um, I unfortunately uh, had a, I'll never forget that text message. I, I got a text message the first semester of seminary. My college roommate took his own life. Got a text. JT killed himself. And the, the pastor who officiated this funeral got up there and said, why is everyone sad? Why is everyone crying? I'm happy. This is a celebration. And I'm sure this well and I'm sure this brother was well intended. But he was trying to so quickly move past the loss that he came across as dismissive of this of this life that we had just lost. And so when you come alongside someone grieving, don't you don't need to try to cheer them up. Okay, oftentimes our efforts to do that are more honestly for us because it's awkward to sit there with someone as they weep. We want to cheer people up, make them feel better. Well, I don't want to say this person's name who was just lost because I don't want to make them sad. Hey, let me tell you what, they're already sad. They're already sad. Listen, they're not people who have lost someone special. They're not trying to erase that person from their family history. And ironically and tragically, sometimes that's what happens. Someone says, oh, let's not say the person's name. Let's functionally try to forget them so this person doesn't cry a little bit more. Folks, it's backwards. People aren't trying to forget the people that they love. So don't make that mistake. Ask about that person. Let them know that it's okay for, for, for them to, to cry and, and you don't need to feel like you need to fix them up or tell a joke or get them cheery again. We need to help and encourage people grieve well not move past it just to, you know, be happier. Okay? So I would say one as you handle this paradigm. Number two, you need to accept that everyone's grief is their own. People are going to grieve in very different ways, and, and that's because relationships are different. Just because you lost your mom doesn't mean you know how, this, how it is for this person to lose their mom. You might have an inkling of an idea, but because those relationships were different, the fallout of that death is going to be different as well. Uh, and, and so everyone processes things differently, but contrary to some of the grief counseling material, there are inappropriate ways to grieve. One is here, hopeless grief in the case of someone who has died in Christ. Uh, um, and the second kind of grief that's inappropriate is identity-defining grief. This is where my loss defines who I am. Who am I? I am a widow. I am a widower. I am a bereaved parent. And instead of this being a part of your story that God is working somehow for good that you honestly probably can't understand, it becomes who you are. It becomes your identity. 
And your identity is in Christ and not in things that happen to you. And it's not in loss. And it's not in things that can be taken away. There are incorrect ways to grieve. And I would say those are the primary two. Grief without hope in certain cases and identity, identity defining grief. Your losses do not define who you are. Your loss is not your whole story. And so we can't let our world shrink down to the size of our pain. Finally, because our losses are real, they are abiding. They are abiding. Because, our lo- because, because losses are abiding, so will be our grief. And there will be grief, and there will be re-grief. And even though the, 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 the feel and the tenor and the shape of that grief will change over time, it won't go away. And it's because we, we grieve because we love. We grieve because we love. And so paradoxically here, I want to urge those of you grieving the loss of a loved one to never stop grieving. Because that would require of you shutting down a pocket of your heart and saying, I'm going to try to harden this part to not feel grief. But it's too great of a cost, brothers and sisters. It's too great of a cost. What I want you to do instead is carry that grief with you and tend to it thoughtfully. Tend to it sober-mindedly. Tend to it hopefully as God continues to write the story. Let's be people who grieve and help others grieve well, but not as those without hope. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for the hope of resurrection, for the hope of a coming king that we will escort down to judge the nations, to transform everything that we know such that everything that is bad and sad and wrong becomes untrue and righteousness reigns and renewal wins. Lord, I pray for those especially here whose hearts will be particularly heavy this Christmas. We're already heavy on Thanksgiving. I pray that they would know your nearness that they would think well and sober-mindedly about the loss that they've had, that they feel permission to grieve and to re-grieve, to not feel like they have to be on some kind of time frame for somebody. But I pray that they would grieve as those who have hope, hope in you, perhaps hope for the person who has died if they're in Christ. But would you meet them please right where they are? Thank you for being a God of hope and resurrection. I ask these things in Jesus' name.